Facing the Crisis. This is number two, with a praying and temperate people. Prayer is absolutely vital to a robust Christian life. Prayer is something God's last day people need to cultivate in a very stirring and committed manner. The more we pray, the closer we are drawn to God, and the greater our faith grows. My father was a great believer that God answered prayer. He often told how God answered his prayer when, as a young man, he tried desperately to overcome his drinking habit before he became an Adventist. He was a plasterer by trade, working in the Los Angeles area. Each night, as he returned to his home after his work day, he had a habit of spending time at a saloon located at the corner where he got off the streetcar. As the days went by, he realized that he was well on the road to becoming an alcoholic. Listening to his mother's prayers convinced him that God could help him. So one day he asked God to help him not to stop at the saloon that night when he got off the streetcar. He even decided to help himself by riding the streetcar one block further to avoid walking by the saloon where he always stopped. He did not realize that the devil had a saloon on the next corner also. Those were the days when the entrance door to the saloon was composed of two half doors, allowing the liquor aroma to pass over and under the door and out to the sidewalk. As he started to walk by, he was compelled by the smell to enter. He didn't want to. He had determined not to, but his feet took him to the door automatically. His hands pushed the door in. Suddenly, he remembered his morning prayer for help, and again he cried out within his heart, God, help me. Instantly, God opened his eyes, and what he saw, he never forgot to his dying day. For over the bar, he saw an evil angel hovering in the air above, controlling a dozen or more men who were drinking at the bar. He was captivated by this magnificent creature, about 15 feet in length, as it lay in the air above the bar. For a moment, he was spellbound until this evil angel turned from the men and looked him square in the eyes. He became terrified as he beheld such an evil face and especially the devilish look in his evil eyes. Dad realized that if he joined the men at the bar, this devil would completely control him as he was controlling all of the other men. Quickly, he turned around and walked away, never again to enter any saloon, never again to take a drink. How often I have heard my father praise God for answering his prayer. In just a few months, he became a baptized Seventh-day Adventist, ever faithful to the message with the hope that he would live to see Jesus come. And, beloved, I know that he will, although he is now asleep in Jesus. For God has told us that all who die faithful to the three angels' message will arise in that special resurrection to see Jesus come. Let us pray. O loving Father, 
in this study, we need thy divine help to teach us how to earnestly pray in such a way that deity can supply our every need in this final battle with Satan. Help us, Father, to follow thy divine guidelines in temperate living, that we may form characters worthy of thy approval. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Faith and prayer are a part of each other, for faith gives birth to prayer and grows stronger, strikes deeper, rises higher in the struggles and the wrestling of a mighty petitioning. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the one great condition of prayer. The lack of it lies at the root of all poor, feeble praying and unanswered prayer. What a glorious achievement would come to God's people if only they would be mighty in faith and prayer, especially now in these darkening hours of closing history. We need men of great faith and men who know how to pray. I quote, Men of faith and prayer will be constrained to go forth with holy zeal, declaring the words which God gives them. Great Controversy, page 606. Faith needs to be cultivated. We need to keep praying, Lord, increase our faith, for faith is increased by exercise, nourished by sore trials. Faith also grows by reading and meditating upon the Word of God. And most best of all, faith thrives in an atmosphere of prayer. Christ clearly taught that faith was the condition on which prayer was answered. When we pray, do we really believe that without a single doubt, God hears our petitions? I quote, By your fervent prayer of faith, you can move the arm that moves the world. That's taken from Adventist Home, page 264. What a promise! Praise the Lord! But this is not easy. It is reached only after much praying and much waiting. Our faith must so increase until we realize and receive all the fullness there is in that name which is guaranteed to do so much. Many a failure in a revival effort for others has been traceable to a lack of faith. To be much on our knees in private communion with God is the only surety that we shall have him with us in our personal struggles and in our efforts to convert sinners. God wants to be represented by a people that are on fire for him. There are two things that are intolerable to God, insincerity and lukewarmness, lack of heart and lack of heat are two things he loathes. And to the Laodiceans he said in condemnation, I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Revelation three, fifteen and 16. This was God's expressed judgment on the lack of fire in the Laodicean church. And it is his indictment against individual Christians for the fatal want of sacred zeal. 
in prayer, nothing short of being red-hot for God can keep the glow of heaven in our hearts while the living in this cold, sinful world. Nothing distinguishes the children of God so clearly and strongly as prayer. It is the one infallible mark and test of being a Christian. But most Christians have not cultivated continual prayer in their lives. Prayer must be habitual, a yearning for divine communion. Prayer has everything to do with molding the soul into the image of God, for it has to do with enhancing and enlarging the measure of divine grace. It brings the child of God into complete communion with him. The people of God cannot possibly be called Christians if they do not have daily prayer with their maker. In our prayers, God must be approached in humbleness, for God is the creator. We are the created. God is holy. We are sinful. God is the giver. We are the receivers. God is immortal. We are mortal. God is perfect. We are imperfect. God is all-powerful. We are weak. God is self-sustaining. We are dependent. So, when we glimpse even partially at the wisdom, justice, mercy, and greatness of the eternal God, we will approach him with awe and humbleness. Whether we are kneeling or standing or walking and offering our silent petitions to God, we should feel solemn and humble in his presence. With the angels who veil their faces at the very mention of his name, we will be filled with wonder that the one so great in majesty and power has invited us to commune with him. Sensing our inadequacy, our sinfulness, and our dependence, we will approach our Heavenly Father reverently in Jesus' name. The Bible writers had a clear view of God's greatness and, as a result, bowed down as they prayed. No one can examine carefully the reference of Bible writers to prayer without being impressed that the spiritual greats of ancient times considered it both a privilege and an obligation to kneel as they approached the Eternal in prayer. Even Solomon who was king during the peak of Israel's national glory and prestige, when he offered his magnificent prayer at the dedication of the temple, kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. Second Chronicles 6.13 And Jesus who is our example, kneeled down and prayed. Luke twenty-two forty-one. I quote, Where have our brethren obtained the idea that they should stand upon their feet when praying to God? To bow down when in prayer to God is the proper attitude to occupy, both in public and private worship. It is our duty to bow down upon our knees before God when we offer our petitions to Him. This act shows our dependence upon God. And when you assemble to worship God, be sure 
and bow your knees before him. Let this act testify that the whole soul, body, and spirit are in subjection to the spirit of truth. Man must come on bended knee as a subject of grace, a supplicant at the footstool of mercy. Selected Messages 2, page 322 to 315. But let us keep in mind that prayer is appropriate anywhere and at any time. I quote, Wherever we are, whatever our employment, our hearts are to be uplifted to God in prayer. We need not wait until we can bow upon our knees before we pray. Bible Commentary 3, page 1136. We have also been instructed when engaged in our daily labor, we may breathe out our heart's desire, inaudible to any human ear, but that word cannot die away in silence nor can it be lost. Nothing can drown the soul's desire. It is God to whom we are speaking, and our prayer is heard. Gospel Workers, page 258. Don't you just feel like praising God for such an assurance? Notwithstanding the fact that God is pleased to hear our prayers, Whatever may be our situation or posture, it is indeed unfortunate that congregations stand instead of kneeling for prayer. Such behavior implies that they have a limited understanding of God's character, His power, majesty, and authority. But as God's people, let us remember we are to have compassion an understanding of others and not be condemning of the posture that they may exercise when praying to God. There is a wonderful song about prayer that is titled, When I Kneel Down to Pray. I think the words go like this. Somehow the Savior seems a little nearer when I kneel down to pray and fellowship with him a little dearer when I kneel down to pray. I know that he will always hear me, for he is never far away. And yet, he seems a little closer to me when I kneel down to pray. Don't you like that? Let's listen to Sonny Lou sing these words.
Wasn't that beautiful? I appreciate Sonny Lou's singing so much. Part of praying is confessing our sins to God. But afterwards, it means forsaking these sins. The prayer of repentance is acceptable to God. He delights in hearing the cries of a penitent sinner, but repentance involves not only sorrow for sin, but also the turning away from wrongdoing and living the Christ-centered life. A repentance which does not produce a change in character and conduct is a mere sham. Old things must pass away, and all things must become new. Praying, which does not result in right thinking and right living, is a lie. We have missed the whole office of prayer if we fail to purge our character and rectify our conduct in keeping with our prayer. Consider with me the Christian soldier. Take the word war. This is one word that makes most of us recoil even at the sound of it, except, of course, for Satan. Satan has a strange infatuation with war. He is the author of war, and you and I are now engaged in the last great war, the war of all wars, the last great controversy between Christ and Satan. In this war, two sides are now forming, God's army and Satan's army. Almost the entire world is marching to the drumbeat of Satan, but God is also preparing an army which is composed of his children, a few in each nation around the world. They are being prepared to be Christian soldiers. But a soldier for Christ, if he is to have courage for what lies ahead of him, he must pray unceasingly. Listen, the Christian life is a battle and a march. In this warfare, there is no release. The effort must be continuous and persevering. It is by unceasing endeavor that we maintain the victory over the temptations of Satan. Christian integrity must be sought with resistless energy and maintained with a resolute fixedness of purpose. No one will be born upward, and may I pause here to add that means taken to heaven? No one will be born upward without stern persevering effort in his own behalf. All must engage in this warfare for themselves. No one else can fight our battle. Ministry of Healing, page 453. Many of today's Christians are lacking the discipline of self-denial, a spirit of hardship and determination so prominently found in the military life. Yet, the Christian life is a warfare all the way. Prayer and more prayer increases our fighting qualities against sin and the insurance of more certain victories for God's people. The power of prayer is most forceful on the battlefield amid the din and the strife of the conflict. Paul was preeminently a soldier of the cross. For him, life was no flower bed of ease. He was not what you call a dress parade, holiday soldier, whose only business was to don a uniform on set occasions. His was a life of intense conflict, of constant effort, and at his close, in spite of the end, 
we hear him chanting his final song of victory. I have fought a good fight. The Christian soldier is to pray in all seasons and under all circumstances. In times of peace, as well in his hour of active conflict, prayer must be offered up during his marching and during his fighting. The Christian soldier must be an in, as intense in his praying as he is in his fighting, for his victories will depend much more on his praying than on his fighting. Prayer is the Christian's weapon. The Christian soldier must always be on his guard, for he is faced by a foe that never sleeps, who is always alert and ever prepared to take advantage of the fortunes of war. Watchfulness is a cardinal principle with Christ's warriors. Watch and pray must forever be sounding in his ears. One of the greatest soldiers for Christ was John the Baptist. Because of his prayer life and temperate diet, he became so in tune with God that he was able to do a mighty work in preparation for the Messiah. Inspiration tells us, quote, In this age, just prior to the second coming of Christ in the clouds of heaven, such a work as that of John is to be done. God calls for men who will prepare a people to stand in the great day of the Lord. The message preceding the public ministry of Christ was, Repent, publicans and sinners. Repent, Pharisee and Sadducees. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As a people who believe in Christ soon appearing, we have a message to bear. Prepare to meet thy God. Our message must be as direct as was the message of John. He rebuked kings for their iniquity. Notwithstanding that his life was imperiled, he did not hesitate to declare God's word. And our work in this age must be done as faithfully. In order to give such a message as John gave, we must have a spiritual experience like his. Volume 8 of the Testimonies, page 333. Such counsel demands that we must be a temperate people. For God is interested in our health and happiness here on this earth, as well as in our character development for eternal destiny. The health message is a wonderful gift to the remnant church. It is a great privilege to have the instruction which God has revealed to us concerning the relationship between health habits and character development. In order to gain the victory, we must be temperate. It is through the knowledge of God that we become partakers of the divine nature, and temperance absolutely is necessary for the achievement of this experience. I quote, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible Corinthians 9.25 You may ask, how does health reform aid us in perfecting Christian characters? By temperate living, the way we eat, we do by faith according to the words of God that says, Whatsoever ye eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. But because of indulgence of appetite, all of mankind has become confused 
with a clouded vision, so they cannot discern the truths of God's word or see the folly of trusting to the institutions and frailties of men. This is Satan's design. He knows that the mind, which is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, will become defiled through the mistreatment of the physical frame and is less likely to acknowledge the claims of the Creator. Health reform is one of our greatest blessings, for it promotes a sound body and mind. It is not a hindrance of unpleasant yoke. I quote, Its purpose is to secure the highest development of body, mind, and soul. Councils on Diet and Food, page 457. God has given the health message to this remnant church, not merely to help us to feel better, but to give us clear minds with which to discern truth from error and to develop character. When we overeat, we experience a mind-benumbing effect and the lessening of desire that accompanies it to appreciate spiritual truths. By eating improperly, we can become easily irritated and impatient. If we have consulted our taste buds, but not our intellect, and have eaten things we know are harmful and become sick, then we need to accept responsibility and admit where the cause lies in ourselves. What we put into our mouths can mean either health or sickness. God has commanded to us to eat only that which is good. Christians must eat and drink in a way that will please God. In order to do this, we must govern our eating and drinking according to the principles laid down in the Word of God and not merely by our preferences. In addition, Seventh-day Adventists are even more obliged as a remnant people to put in practice the health principles which God has given to us in the spirit of prophecy. The Creator who made us knows what is best for us to eat, for God is love. He never deprives us of anything that is for our own good. Therefore, it is for our own good to obey him. Intemperance always leads to moral weakness. I quote, When men and women are truly converted, they will conscientiously regard the laws of life that God has established in their being, thus seeking to avoid physical, mental, and moral feebleness. We must answer to God for our habits and practices. Therefore, the question is not, what does the world say, but how shall I, claiming to be a Christian, treat the habitation that God has given me? Testimony 6, page 370. Now let me speak frankly. Let's examine one of the eight laws of proper diet more closely. Some Seventh-day Adventists in particular disregard this one, for they are still eating the flesh of animals. Those who eat flesh foods do not realize the importance of eating and drinking to the glory of God as we read in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Let me make an observation. Seventh-day Adventists do not refrain from eating flesh foods merely from the standpoint of health, or because one runs a risk of eating diseased flesh foods and because it is not the best source of protein, but mainly because the eating of flesh foods 
makes it much more difficult for them to develop a Christ-like character. Let me present some facts. Flesh foods makes it more difficult to be patient and sweet, loving and Christ-like. Many Seventh-day Adventists do not realize that the eating of flesh foods has the same influence upon the disposition of human beings as it has upon the disposition of animals. Flesh eating can make man impatient, irritable, cantankerous, and even vicious. This has been proven over and over again. I quote, There are few who realize, as they should, how much their habits of diet have to do with their health, their character, and their usefulness in this world and their eternal destiny. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 562. The eating of flesh foods will, one, rob people of love and sympathy, two, animalize the nature, three, poison the bloodstream, four, inflame the passions, five, destroy sympathy and affection for one another, six, dampen the spiritual perception and ardor, seven, make one impatient and ill-tempered, eight, pervert the appetite. Now where does such facts come from? Listen, I quote, By the use of flesh meat, the animal nature is strengthened and the spiritual nature weakened. Council on Diet and Food, page 383. And again, I quote, I have been instructed that flesh food has a tendency to animalize the nature to rob men and women of that love and sympathy which they should feel for everyone, and to give the lower passions control over the higher powers of the being. If meat-eating was ever healthful, it is not safe now. Cancers, tumors, pulmonary diseases are largely caused by meat eating. Maybe this is one of the reasons why there is not more agape love among many members in our church. Maybe this is why some Seventh-day Adventists have stopped growing spiritually and are cold and indifferent, proud and covetous and even cantankerous. Maybe this is why so many are still only babes in Christ worldly-minded, materialistic, disgruntled. Could this offer a clue as to why so many of our churches are made up of lukewarm, even indifferent and hostile members? Could the Lord be withholding the latter rain from the church for this reason? What happened to the children of Israel who lusted for the flesh pots of Egypt? I quote, It has been clearly presented to me that God's people are to take a firm stand against meat-eating. Would God for 30 years give his people the message that if they desire to have pure blood and clear minds, they must give up the use of flesh meat if he did not want them to heed this message? Letter 48, 1902. Think it over. God has plainly told us that those who are preparing for translation will give up the eating of flesh foods. I quote, Among those who are waiting for the coming of the Lord, meat eating will eventually be done away. Flesh will cease to form a part of the diet. 
Councils on Diet and Food, 380 and 381. But the alarming truth is this, that many Seventh-day Adventists who persist in eating flesh will be lost. Are you listening? Many who are now only half converted on the question of meat-eating will go from God's people to walk no more with them. Councils on Diet and Food, page 382. How sad. What a tragedy. Now let me give you a word of encouragement. If you seek help from God, I'm quoting, His power working in you will bring to naught all opposing powers, and you will become sanctified through the truth. Review and Herald, June 16, 1861. And here is another gem. What can deity do for us? Everything, if we are willing to surrender all. That's taken from our High Calling, page 19. I feel like saying, praise the Lord. Beloved, we can have total victory over appetite. Why then do we find so few Christians who have attained the goal of completely overcoming appetite? If we examine our appetites more closely, many of us would probably discover that we are still slaves to our taste buds. Many of us still have perverted appetites, eat far too much and much too often, partake of foods that are prepared in ways that do not offer much nutrition. Today's Christians, especially, need to adapt habits of self-control over appetite and begin practicing self-denial. We need to remember that Adam and Eve lost Eden because they did not exercise self-control in denying themselves the forbidden fruit. On the other hand, Daniel and his three Hebrew friends offered a positive reminder of self-denial, standing true as they did while tested upon the point of appetite. I quote, The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian life is self-control. Desire of Ages, page 301. Again, we need to learn that indulged appetite is the greatest hindrance to mental improvement and soul sanctification. Testimonies 9, page 156. Why is the appetite issue so important? Because, A, indulgence of appetite was the first sin committed. B, without the conquest of appetite, the development of character cannot be completed. C, appetite plays a major role in end-time events and it can mean the difference between eternal life or eternal death. D. Our Lord allowed himself to be sorely tempted in the wilderness for 40 days so that he might overcome the sin of indulgence of appetite on our behalf. Consider this. When one enlists in the military, there are certain regulations that must be met. One of the regulations that the inductee must pass is the physical. If the inductee does not meet the health and physical standards, he is rejected. So what about Christ's army? Should Christian soldiers be any less healthier than the world's standard for their soldiers? Should Christ's standards be lower than earthly military standards? God forbid! And yet, when we look around, we see so many sick Christians 
who, in the majority of their cases, their diseases were brought about because the eight laws of health were not practiced. But praise the Lord, our Commander-in-Chief, Jesus Christ, can give us the victory. Let us rejoice in God, who recruited us to be soldiers for the King. We can no longer afford to compromise God's principles, including that of healthful living. God is putting an army together of men and women that have courage of conviction, who cannot be bought or sold, and cannot be intimidated. Such a people will stand like a rock for principle and will be true to their duty. What an army this is going to be. God's last day people will be a spectacle to the entire world mentally, physically, and spiritually. It matters not what the church in former generations has been permitted to do. We are living in an altogether different age. These somber times call for a much higher standard than any Christian in the past has ever been called upon to do. There have always been a few souls who have conformed willingly to God's health standards. But never in history has there been a whole group at one time practicing these worthy principles. We have passed into a new day. We need to become committed and overcome appetite, accept eating a more restricted diet without murmuring and complaining until we are assured of victory. When we have finally conquered through Christ, we can be assured of victory, and he can do the same for us. I quote, The controlling power of appetite will prove the ruin of thousands when, if they had conquered on this point, they would have had moral power to gain the victory over every other temptation of Satan. But those who are slaves to appetite will fail in perfecting Christian character. The continual transgression of man for 6,000 years has brought sickness, pain, and death as its fruits. And as we near the close of time, Satan's temptation to indulge appetite will be more powerful and more difficult to overcome. Testimonies 3, page 491, 492. The Word of God states, The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Remember, to receive the latter rain, God's last day people will be a praying and a temperate people. Let us pray. Dear God, many who have listened to this tape will need thy divine help as my father did when he struggled with temptation. May the Holy Spirit lead us to plead for victory over every besetment, ready to receive the latter rain. May we never forget, it is not by might, nor by power, but by thy Spirit, saith the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God way is the best way.
and trials Oh, gather round me He ever is seeking My go-to refine So humbly I trust Amen. Yeah.